something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A warning. This episode contains language and depictions of violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. I was charged with nine counts of aggravated murder. Almost one year after the April 1993 Lucasville uprising, Keith Lamar, 25, learns he's been indicted by a grand jury for the deaths of five men. I was shocked. How they came, it was about nine or ten of them. And they came on ceremony, basically, to the authority. And they huddled up around my cell and handed me this document, probably, you know, four or five inches thick. And, you know, and it's like Keith Lamar, you know, so the whole range could hear and everything, you know. And I read just enough to see the nine counts, and I just kind of lost my shit. But, yeah, I was just disbelief, shock, bewildered, confused. Um, in denial, then the anger came, and the anger stayed. I'm Leah Rothman. This is The Real Killer. Episode 3, Who is Keith Lamar? It's Friday morning. I'm heading out to go see Keith. Starting route to Ohio State Penitentiary. My stomach hurts. My stomach hurts. I don't feel good. But forward to meeting Keith in person. It's just the whole prison aspect of it that's quite daunting. At the next stop sign, turn right. The destination is on your right, Ohio State Penitentiary. Arrived. Okay, I'm here. I turned off the big microphone because I'm afraid of getting in trouble. They have cameras everywhere. I am about to go into the prison. Damn, it's a scary looking place. As a producer, I've been inside many prisons, but this time it's different. And I'm surprised how nervous I am. From the outside, the Ohio State Penitentiary, a supermax prison, which I've also heard people call a super deprivation prison, is like no prison I've ever seen before. It's an absolute fortress. I walk from the parking lot to a small outdoor steel cage. I'm buzzed in. The door slams behind me. I'm essentially locked in that cage until they let me out. I will not be allowed to record my meeting with Keith. I'm not even allowed to bring in pen and paper. 
Once I get through security, I take an elevator to the visiting room. While I wait, I talk with a corrections officer. I'm sure his body camera is recording me as I answer all of his questions about why I'm there and how I know Keith. About 20 minutes later, Keith appears, handcuffed and escorted by two officers. He walks into his side of our glass and metal enclosed visitor's room, room number 16. The officers uncuff Keith through a hole in the door, then leave. Keith reaches through the small opening in the glass that separates us to shake my hand, and we say our first in-person hellos. Keith is tall, like 6'3", and fit. He's bald, clean-shaven, and has a salt-and-pepper short mustache and goatee. He's wearing a blue short-sleeve shirt over a navy long-sleeve thermal shirt, navy pants, and brown boots. And he has black-framed glasses. Also, he has a nice smile and an infectious laugh. Even though we've talked more than six hours up until this point, meeting in person could be weird, but it's not. I'm at ease with him right off the bat. We have coffee, and Keith eats a chicken sandwich and a Caesar salad that I buy from the vending machines. I'm way too wound up to eat. We talk for about three and a half hours, mostly about his case, I share with him a little bit about my background. He shares some of his with me. I tell him about Melissa and Rodney from our first season and why I wanted to tell their story. And we laugh about the one guard who tried to trick me into leaving him the prepaid debit card I put money on for my visit with Keith. There's this one really awkward moment when we're leaving. He's facing me, being cuffed by officers, and I'm not sure if I should leave or wait for him to leave first. So I start backing up, doing this weird sort of stuttered goodbye dance. Keith laughs and tells me it's okay to go. So I do. When I get back to the car, I immediately turn on the microphone. I'm pretty flustered. Okay. Oh my God. Um, I just got out of the prison. Supermax. Absolutely terrifying place. The level of security is crazy, but the place, it's like, I mean, the time with Keith was so easy. You almost forget, you know, and he even said, it's really, like, it's really, really bad in, in parts of the prison. What else? Let's see. Um, he was funny and thoughtful and it was a real conversation I mean it was hours and hours I feel like stuff is going to come to me when I get back to my hotel I remember something interesting Keith said so I turned the mic back on he thinks that he may know of a different motive for why the four in L6 were killed and he wants me to look into it Remember, Keith's been accused of leading a death squad in the early hours of the uprising, supposedly going cell to cell in L6, killing four snitches who had been locked up for their own protection. But he says, not so fast. Keith wonders whether those alleged snitches were snitches at all. Maybe they were murdered because they were actually child molesters or rapists, the most hated in the prison population. Or maybe the state decided to label the victim snitches so they would appear more sympathetic to a jury. I don't know if there's anything to this, but I'm going to look into it regardless. In the meantime, I learned from Keith on our next call, my exit that day looked as awkward as it felt. Uh, Like, you've been knowing me for 100 years. Like, you know, that was like a movie. You know what I mean? What? <laughs> like I was going off to the Army, you know? <laughs> <laughs> going to fight the war, you know, saying goodbye, yeah. What do most people do? Just walk away? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, no. Everybody does the same thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, yeah, it was nice. 
It was nice a really nice see, visit. Nice to spend that time with you, yeah. It was a nice visit. And it's a confusing feeling I still can't shake. I mean, how can this seemingly gracious and kind man be capable of the vicious murders he's been accused of? And look, I've worked in true crime long enough to know that some of the most infamous killers are charming as hell. But we as humans want to believe the best in people, right? I know I do. Anyway, after that visit with Keith, the next day, I head out to meet with someone else. Starting route to Athens. Proceed to Columbus Road, then turn left. I drive three-plus hours to Athens, Ohio, to meet Herman Carson, one half of Keith's trial attorney team. The destination is on your left. Arrived. Herman and I meet in a conference room at one of the local hotels, right around checkout time. Yeah. There's the vacuum. Yep. How's it killing your recording? It's killing it. Herman Carson, a father of three daughters and grandfather of seven, was a defense attorney for almost 29 years. Why did you want to become an attorney? What about the law intrigued you or excited you? I don't know that any of it excited me. (laughs) Uh, I see it and still see it as a helping profession. Herman was also the head of the local public defender's office and the director of a 10-county branch for the Office of the Ohio Public Defender before retiring in 2019. Primarily timed my retirement to being able to travel to Kentucky to watch my two oldest grandsons play soccer. The other half of Keith's trial attorney team is Kay Robert Toy, also from Athens. I speak with him separately over Zoom. What does the K stand for? Kung Fu. Oh, that's a joke. That stands for Carrie, K-E-R-R-Y. Now that's uh, a female's name. So when I grew up, it was a name my parents liked. But I, when I went with my family, I'm Carrie. But when I joke around, it's Kung Fu. In 1994, Bob and Herman will team up, which is new territory for them. In the 10 years before that, they faced off in the courtroom. Herman as a defense attorney, and Bob as a prosecutor. I was more a persecutor than I was a prosecutor. You were tough, to say the least? Oh, yeah. After spending 14 years as a prosecuting attorney, Bob was appointed as the Athens County Prosecutor in the summer of 1992. Later that year, he ran for public office, but narrowly lost, so he opened up his private practice. The judge, who is assigned to Keith's case, Judge Fred Crow, knows Bob professionally and asks him if he'll represent Keith. Bob says yes, then asks Herman to be his co-counsel. Their first order of business is to meet with their client. Well, I told Bob, I said, you know, I said, this may not go very well. I said, because we're going to be telling Mr. Lamar Uh, hi, we're two white guys that the government has sent to help you. I said, I don't think that'll go over very well, but we'll see. Herman isn't wrong. Keith is leery of them both. I mean, Herman Carson, uh, my initial impression was that he was just, because he looked like a typical redneck, you know, at the handlebar, mustache, big cowboy mustache. Robert Torino struck me as one of those slippery types. That's hardly a vote of confidence, but they're all he's got. Unfortunately, neither Herman nor Bob feel optimistic about the case. Here's Herman. When they dealt the cards, we didn't get any good ones. It's a highly publicized situation. The only positive thing you could say is at least they didn't charge him with uh, participating in the killing of the correctional officer. That was the only plus I could think of. At least we're not charged with that. But that's, yeah, it was pretty much stacked against you. The prosecutors offered him what we thought was a fantastic deal, which would be two murders to be concurrent with the murder he was already doing. And I know my conversation with Keith was, Keith, hey, if we uh, got a parking ticket out here when we come to visit you, our penalty would be worse than yours. And, you know, he stood up, and he's a stand-up guy, and he says, no, I'm not going to, because I did not do it.
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Herman Carson and Bob Toy will be representing Keith when he goes on trial. What physical evidence did they have against Keith Lamar? Zero. They had zero physical evidence. Five brutal killings. Just nothing. So if there's no physical evidence tying Keith to the crimes he's been charged with, how did he end up here? Here's Herman. My belief is that Keith and a small core group, pardon my language, but when they were approached in the investigation, they said, fuck you. We're not talking. It don't matter what we know. We're not doing it. And from there, it was like, okay, uh, bro, put this on somebody. You're going to be the target. Targeted or not. What the state has in their arsenal are those interviews conducted by the Ohio State Highway Patrol with prisoners who, unlike Keith, did cooperate. And in those interviews, several of them eventually point the finger at Keith and name him as the, quote, leader of the death squad. On the surface, it doesn't look great for Bob and Herman's defense, but their preparation for trial isn't just about sifting through whatever evidence there may or may not be. They also need to learn more about Keith. Here's Herman. I went a lot of times to see Keith by myself to get to know him and to get to know his background. I mean, you know, he was out on his own when he's 15 or 16. He had an apartment in the projects, was dealing drugs. And more, like the serious crime that sends Keith at age 19 to prison in the first place. But to understand how Keith got there, you first have to understand where he comes from. By the way, Keith's audio coming up isn't great. Keith believes that from time to time, people at the prison will listen in and purposely mess with the phone lines or interrupt the Wi-Fi. There's no way of knowing if that's true or not. Let's talk about, like, 
early stuff. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, I was born in 1969, May 31st, 1969, to a single mother, the third of four kids, my older brother, Nelson, the second oldest brother, Blair, who died when I was, when he was eight years old, uh, leukemia, then this is myself, and then I have a younger sister, Princess. We grew up in this place called uh, uh, Village, small enclave on the east side of Cleveland, uh, made up of uh, working class people who were working for the most part in the steel mills and factory that was adjacent to uh, our community. My grandfather worked in, uh, at this place called Republic Steel, bought his own house for $12,000 um, in 1960s, from what I understand. And, um, and so, yeah, that was our home here in this little neighborhood. And it was a community where, you know, everybody knew each other, just a small, tight-knit neighborhood. And I stayed there until I was around, uh, I would say, nine years old. You know, by then, my mother had been married for a few years to this man named Larry Morris, my stepdad. Describe your mom for me in those early years. My mom, um, whose name is Catherine Lamar, she was just, you know, a sweet woman, tender woman, you know. Um, but, you know, that tenderness was something that she doled out in, 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 um, in, in pieces, you know. So, you know, one time in particular, I was around nine or 10 years old, I was sick and stayed home from school. And her and I watched this movie called Sparkle with Diana Ross. And we watched it over and over. We had a few, you know, experiences along those lines. She wasn't like a, a terrible person. She just was terribly troubled. I remember my earliest memories of my mother. She was always in some form or another intoxicated. She was always on, you know, um, various pills, sleeping pills, diet pills, quaaludes. Keith says he didn't learn a lot of this until after his mother passed away in 2014. But he does remember one early and awful memory quite clearly. In fact, you know, when I was around five, four or five years old, we lived in this real tough neighborhood called uh, King Kennedy Housing Project. And one night, you know, I came to, um, I heard somebody knocking on the door and I went to open it. You know, the guy bribed me, slid some money under the bottom of the door and I opened the door, released the latch and this man ended up raping my mom that night. Okay. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, um, and several days after that, this man was killed by one of my mother's boyfriends and you know his body was lying <clears throat> beneath my bedroom window and I'm you know four or five years old and I you know recall somebody standing behind me and asked look at what you did. Keith is told he is the reason that man was dead. How does a child that young even process something like that? How can it not leave a lasting effect? Around age nine, Keith, his mom, stepdad Larry, and siblings move away from his grandparents in the village. Keith says that's when the real struggles begin. I remember growing up with the lights being cut off, the heat being cut off. We grew up, you know, going through periods where we didn't have food. And it's around this time Keith meets a new friend, Sherman Whaley. Even though their homes aren't far in proximity, their lives are worlds apart. Both his parents lived together, lived in like this white picket fence type situation going on. And um, somehow we became friends in the sixth grade, his best friend. Because he was kind of ostracized too, because he was short. I was ostracized because I was dirty. And so, you know, he and I became friends, short and dirty. You know, and um, we hung together every day. His mother became like my surrogate mother. I spent the night over their house quite a bit. We did everything together, you know. He uh, would um, ride his bike to our house pretty much every day. That's Sherman Whaley. Today, he's a park police officer for Cleveland Metro Parks and a married father of four daughters. We played on the same baseball team. So my mom would go pick him up and he would spend the night. She would, you know, make us breakfast and, you know, sometimes she would wash his clothes. 
I remember he had such lovely manners. He never walked in my home that he didn't speak. Hi, Mr. Whaley. Hi, Mrs. Whaley. How are you? That's Carmen Whaley, Sherman's mother. Also a doting grandmother, writer of poetry and short stories, and honestly, one of the sweetest women I've ever met. I just remember them always laughing. They were always happy together, and they played well together. He didn't have a mean bone in his body. I mean, he was just the type of kid that was just uh, radiated happiness, and uh, I just enjoyed having him in my home. We used to put hot dogs and hamburgers on the grill when he'd be here, and I had fruit, bananas, and strawberries and cherries and whatnot and bags of chips. He, he, he ate good. But he could eat, though. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. I always took Keith home. And I always, there was always a feeling of sadness. When I felt sad when I dropped him off. I, uh, I don't know. It was just there that I just felt. You just know that things aren't the way they really should be. You just have that inner feeling, that innate feeling, because because when you're a mother, you just know certain things. And if I could have nurtured him for a long time, I would have done it. But he had a mother, you know what I mean? And he had family and home and whatnot. So, you know, I had to stay within my parameters and whatnot. One of the most dominating and traumatizing figures in Keith's family is his stepfather, Larry Morris. He passed away in the late 90s. So tell me some of your earliest memories of Larry. He was a musician. He was a drummer. Uh, He was from New Orleans. He was uh, a working, you know, blue-collar type person. But in terms of his personality and his sensibility, there was a lot of mental, emotional, physical abuse. Do you remember the first time Larry hit you? No, it seemed like it it just, you know, um, always was present. And, you know, the beatings were so rampant and arbitrary in my household that, you know, I really kind of developed, was a kind of hypervigilant young person because I didn't know what would result in me being beaten. You know, I was playing football with one of my neighbors who had asthma and I was running drills because I was a quarterback and he had an asthma attack. And somehow I was blamed for that and was beaten um, to the point, you know, where it was, it crossed over to like a, a major assault. The belt buckle struck me on the right side of my face and I carried the mark even to this day. It wasn't even outrage, it was just shock. Mm-hmm. You know, that you can be just walking along and all of a sudden a trap door opens and you just, you know, in in a different place. What did your mom do or say when Larry would hit you? I mean, sadly, she was the one who kind of set it up. You know, go in the the room and wait on your father to come home. And then so I can hear the car when they pull up in the driveway. I hear the keys turning in the door and I can hear him, you know, mumbling with my mother and I can hear him taking his belt off. I can hear all that, you know what I mean? Even right now. The only way Keith feels he can fight back against his stepdad is through the one thing that matters to him. My stepfather, he loved football. He was a fanatic. And playing, you know, football, being a star athlete, you know, seemed to, you know, uh, give him something to be proud of, at least during that particular football season. And that, you know, of course, made me happy. You know, when I was 12, 13 years old, when the beating, you know, kind of increased in intensity, I quit football to kind of punish him. And I think that, you know, um, was probably one of the biggest mistakes that I made in my life in terms of being able to go to college, being able, you know, you know, to stay out of trouble. But yeah, I did that. I stopped playing as a way to punish my stepfather. So with football no longer his focus, Keith takes on another hobby of sorts shoplifting. But it doesn't start the way you might think. I uh, started working 10 years old. I had two paper routes. And this in addition to cutting grass in the summertime or shoveling snow in the winter. Because I had to buy my own clothes, you know, school clothes for us, 
for at least my brother and I were a pack of six pack of tube socks and some underwear. That's what we got for school. You know, you go to school to learn how to do math, read books, and learn about history. But you also are learning from your peers what's socially acceptable, how to be popular. And one of the lessons that you learn coming out of school is that what you have is more important than who you are. That was a lesson that was driven home to me when I was 12 years old. My classmates, all of them, you know, took the time to point out to me that, you know, my clothes was less than shabby, that I was a hobo, a bum. Called me a bum. You a bum, you know. At the summer of my fifth grade year, going into the sixth grade, I saved up all my money and I bought me five outfits. And I was saving up, you know, for some shoes. These shoes called uh, creepers, net, black net shoes with a, uh, a, a beige gum bottom, real cheap shoes. But they were in style at this, at this particular time. And I was saving up. That was the last piece to my whole, you know, um, remake. And I'm saving up and I was, you know, putting my money in a pickle jar above the you know, third shelf of the, in the kitchen counter. As it turns out, my brother had found it, took all the money out of it and took my sister to the uh, mall for pizza and video games. And I was devastated because school was starting the week after that. And because now the only way I can get these shoes is to steal them because I don't have the money. And, you know, of course, you know, I, I, I got caught stealing the shoes. You know, I wasn't a thief yet. That took time. That took repeated tries, you know, a few years before I became a thief. But, you know, that was my first attempt. Keith gets busted shoplifting by store managers from time to time. Going to mall jail is one thing. Being arrested by Cleveland police and facing an actual judge is something very different. I was caught joyriding in a stolen vehicle with six other individuals who had multiple convictions that I then became an official criminal in terms of being in the system, logging to, you know, the system as a car thief. Yeah. At 13, Keith is sent to juvenile detention for six months. I was being told what to do uh, in a way that I understood. I didn't really have a, a choice in the matter. But everything was ultimately being done to provide structure and to provide some sense of agency and whatnot. So when I came home from the juvenile place and from this situation of structure, I was a straight A student, but I came home to the same uh, economic situation. In fact, it was worse. When I came home, my family had moved into a two bedroom apartment. You know, one bedroom for my parents, one room for my sister. And, you know, uh, my brother and I had to live in an uninsulated attic. No electricity or whatever. Needing money, Keith turns to a family member for help. I went to a favorite aunt of mine and told her that I wanted to start selling marijuana. She, of course, tried to convince me against, you know, going down that path. But I was determined, and I think she saw that, and I kind of made the plea that, listen, if you don't do this for me, I'm going to go out here and some, somebody I don't know is going to cheat me out of my money. You know what I mean? So if you, you know, if you want to help me now is the time. And she ultimately relented, taught me, you know, how to, you know, uh, bag it up and everything. And, you know, I didn't look back after that. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. 
I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Kevin Lowry knows Keith Lamar better than almost anyone. So, Tommy, you and Keith are cousins, right? Okay. Um, in reality, uh, Keith's brother, Nelson Lamar, is my cousin. And uh, because of that affiliation, we grew up as cousins. On this hot and humid night, Kevin, a businessman with a law degree and his wife, Ramona, a civil engineer for the city of Cleveland, invite me into their beautiful home in an affluent suburb of Cleveland to talk about Keith. Kevin and Ramona have been together 36 years and are parents to a daughter and son. Tragically, less than one month after this interview is recorded, Kevin dies unexpectedly. Multiple people would tell you that they were Keith's best friend but we considered ourselves to be best friends during that time. Keith's uh, family, you know, they were known uh, throughout the neighborhood. Our homes were kind of volatile. You know, I'm not trying to disparage, but uh, we came from an area that, uh, how can I put it, Uh, during the time when we came up that some criminal activity wasn't looked down on. And obviously, uh, Keith had issues at his home that he didn't talk about, you know. And so when you would see him or I on the street, you know, uh, he was always cracking jokes. You know, they say people wear many masks. He wore a mask at that time as if life was grand, you know, that he was living well, that he was doing good. Sometimes people laugh and smile to keep from crying. Kevin's wife, Ramona, meets Keith the same night she meets Kevin at a neighborhood skate and dance club called The Plush. She's 15 at the time. Keith was goofy. During that time, there were quite a few nightclubs for kids to go to. So I would see him at all of those. So when he said dancing... Was he a good dancer? He was a good dancer. It was just before the break dance era, and uh, he, he was really good at, at dancing. But Kevin's close relationship with Keith causes some problems in Kevin and Ramona's budding romance. Keith and I never had any type of um, like negative words, so whenever we were around each other, it was always cordial, good conversation. So it was more Kevin and I bumping heads because I'm saying, hey, let's go do this. And he said, oh, but me and Keith are going to go do this. And so it was more about him saying, I'll see you another day. I'm about to go and hang with Keith. I remember one of the areas that Keith lived in, which was uh, off 123rd in Angeles here in Cleveland. And uh, they lived in a corner house. I had a third floor. It was a store underneath it. Keith lived there with his mom and Larry and his sister and brother. And Keith and his brother uh, slept in that third floor, you know, um, fighting against the elements. 
hot in the summer, freezing cold in the winter, you know, and that's when he ended up leaving home. But it's not just the elements Keith is fighting. After another horrible altercation with his stepfather, Larry, Keith, who was 15 at the time, has had enough. He moves out of his parents' attic and in with a friend. He already had a place, and we were more or less using that place to sell drugs out of. So I moved into the apartment. Around this time, Keith also drops out of school. Can you describe a little for me what it was like, though, being a teenager living in that environment? Growing up in the projects, the attitude was, you know, okay, nothing, you know, life isn't fair. So why should we be fair? Why should we live by a code where we see that, you know, it, it, it has been already been violated? I started carrying a gun when I was about 16 years old. And it was really deep off into the drug trade. I was selling cocaine and started snorting cocaine. So I got hooked. Without, I was a drug addict without even really fully appreciating that I was hooked on drugs. And, you know, I was, you know, robbing jewelry stores. And so a lot of money passed through my hands. You know, I had a Mercedes Benz, Cadillac. I was living really on the edge, 24-7, around the clock. Then a devastating event changes everything. It's December 2nd, 1988. Keith is 19 years old. Can you tell me about what happened in that oh, shooting? Oh, yeah. Talking, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I had been robbed several times. And so in that particular day, I was dropped off some drugs. I was in the back bedroom counting the money. And somebody knocked on the door. And I heard that. And um, the guy who was in the, uh, it was several people in the house with me. But one of the guys opened up the door and I heard a lot of commotion. And so I came out. I had my gun in my hand. I came out as soon as the guy who was in the front, Kenyatta, as soon as he saw me, he was raised his gun up, and I shot him. And they were ran out of the apartment because the bullets were flying. Then I got shot in my right leg, and I made it to the bottom of the project building. It was on the third floor, but it happened. I made it to the bottom of the uh, um, hallway, and I sat down there on, on the stairs. And um, my brother uh, called the ambulance. And then I woke up in the hospital room the next morning, handcuffed to the bed. But that's the kind of thing, those are the kind of things that can happen to you in that world. You know, you could be riding high one moment and literally the next moment you could be dead. And of course, you know, uh, I was dealing illegal drugs. There was no argument that I could make when I went to court that I was standing on my ground or that I was self-defense, but I was selling drugs and you can't, if your hands are dirty. And his name, Kenyatta Collins? Kenyatta Collins, yeah, that's right. And was he, he was a childhood friend or you had known him from when you guys yeah, were kids? Yeah, he, he, was, he was a friend. I, I would call him that. Yeah, we walked to school together, um, played basketball together. But he was uh, a friend of proximity, if you understand what I mean. 20-year-old Kenyatta Collins dies as a result of two gunshot wounds. When you realized that Kenyatta Collins died, um, oh, yeah. What did you feel? You know, for for uh, for certainly on that day and for a long time after that, I was blocked by the idea that he was my enemy, somebody who had came to do me harm. And so I was entitled to feel a certain way about what had happened between us. I was reaching for some kind of justification so that I won't have to feel so bad about this thing I've done. Keith pleads guilty and is sentenced 18 years to life. In 1989, Keith begins serving his time at Lebanon Correctional Institution in Southern Ohio. When I first got to Lebanon, I met this guy, and he took me on his wing, taught me how to play chess, taught me how to box, you know, and then that, you know, really gave me a, a, a foundation to start, you know, building up how I wanted to kind of live my life. So I got my GED, I enrolled to the college program. And at Lebanon, Keith finds a small piece of home. It was only a handful of people from Cleveland who were down there. If you were from Cleveland, we hung out together. One of those guys is George Faison. You met him in the last episode. We both were basically, uh, I don't like to say products of our environment. It's just the environment we grew up in. 
you know, there were a lot of broken homes, a lot of illegal things going on around us. And unfortunately, we did succumb to some of those situations that were going on in our environment. Tokyo Morgan is there, too. I've been on Keith since elementary school. And I ain't gonna lie, only thing changed is weight and the height. The guy's a very humorous guy, you know, and honestly, he got a beautiful disposition. If a situation go down bad, or by two, that's why y'all said, man, it ain't even worth it. So he'll just walk away, and I do the same thing. But something happens at Lebanon that challenges that very notion. We were starting to have problems with this other group of guys from um, Dayton, Ohio. A friend of Keith's tells him one of the Dayton guys has threatened to kill him. In prison, that can't go unanswered. A huge fight breaks out between the Cleveland guys and the Dayton guys. And when it's all over, Keith, George, Tokyo, and some of the others are transferred to Lucasville. It's a horrible twist of fate, really. Turns out Keith's friend's life never had been threatened. That fight never needed to happen. It was based on a lie. Ultimately, he set things in motion that resulted in us being, at, you know, arriving down Lucasville. Lucasville was like Alcatraz. You went there to die. When I got there, a friend of my brother's gave me a tour of the place. And by tour, I mean, he showed me where all the knives were buried. You know, he had knives planted in the ground on the recreation yard, and they had these little ribbons on the end of them, so you could see them in the foliage of the grass or, you know, uh, against the, the fence posts or wherever they were hidden, and knives in the hallway, knives in the kitchen. So that let me know, you know, like, why I need all these knives? That's telling you the world that you have entered into. Prior to the uprising, did you have any disciplinary write-ups or... At Lucasville? Yeah. I think I had several... Somebody stole Faison's property, his clothes, his sweatsuits, and tennis shoes. And we jumped this guy in the kitchen. I got into several fights down in Lucasville. Whenever something did happen, like when, you know, George and I uh, confronted this guy about stealing his, his property, that was something that obviously we had to respond to because in prison, if you don't respond to things like that, now you become known for that people, if they want to take something from somebody, go take it from Keith and George. They won't do anything. You know, if you do something, it you could get in trouble. But if you don't do something, you're also a target. And it, yeah, you damned if you do, you damned if you don't. Exactly. I'm not an angel. And so, you know, I won't shy away from saying about or telling you about all the sort of shit I've done in my life, things that I regret. A lot of regret. Oh, my God. Yeah. A lot of shit that I wish I can go back and redo. But just imagine you being accused of doing something that you know you haven't done. But you have to answer to it for the rest of your life. Keith says when he's guilty, he admits he's guilty. But ever since the Lucasville uprising almost three decades ago, he's been adamant that he was not the leader of the death squad and he did not kill those five men. Defending his life begins in June of 1995. There was nothing I could really say because I'm innocent. They didn't have any evidence to prove that I killed these five people. You know, that's the criminal justice system in a nutshell. Yeah. Next time on The Real Killer. How did you feel about your case? Oh, I thought he was going to get convicted. Keith Lamar goes on trial, and some say the state's witnesses are singing for their supper. I felt that they were lying and they had plenty of incentive to lie. Reliving it almost 30 years later is anything but easy. Are you still there? Physically, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm already back in 1995, sitting in this courtroom, I'm just envisioning this shit. This shit is absurd, man. It's just like... <laughs> these fucking people, man, you know. My God. We would like to extend our deepest condolences to Kevin Lowry's wife, Ramona, their children, friends, and family.
In the short time I knew Kevin, he was so funny, welcoming, and warm. And he let me know how important it was for us to get together so he could share his memories of and love for his cousin Keith. Again, to all who knew and loved Kevin, we are very sorry for your loss. The Real Killer is a production of AYR Media and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Leah Rothman. Executive producers Leah Rothman and Elisa Rosen for AYR Media. Written by Leah Rothman. Executive producer Paulina Williams. Senior associate producer Jill Pashesnik. Coordinator George Fom. Editing and sound design by Cameron Taggy. Mixed and mastered by Cameron Taggy. Audio engineering by Matt Jacobson. Studio engineering by Anna Mulishan. Legal counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive producer for iHeartRadio, Maya Howard. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.